Hebrews, part 31. We're starting chapter 9. And the title of this morning's message is, is long. What are unintentional sins? You'll see that as we read the text. Unintentional sins. What are unintentional sins? And how is perfect peace with a holy God possible for people who still aren't perfect? We're going to look at Hebrews 9 and we're going to read 10 verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Just an editorial comment. Probably, you'll read other verses, this is what, this is what textual critics uh, look at this kind of stuff because there are other passages that clearly state the only thing in the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law. So probably what you have is the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the law inside and on on each side of the mercy seat, the golden urn and Aaron's staff. It's not important really except that you might come across that. Five. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests, plural, go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. He doesn't outline them, he just says performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year... And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. So, obviously, the access into the Holy of Holies isn't open, and the first section, the holy place, gives testimony to that, because that's the only place the priests can go. They can't go into the holy of holies. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hence in the title, How how Do Imperfect People Get Peace with the Holy God? Verse 10, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let's pray.
how we need the Holy Spirit to quicken our minds or we're likely to read a text like this and think of it as belonging to a different age with symbols and ideas and facts that have nothing to do with our lives. And all of this text that we read is included in the New Covenant to the New Testament church. And your Holy Spirit inspired these words to quicken something in our hearts of the preciousness of our redemption through Christ. And so we need your help. Come into this place and uh, illumine our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's a sense in which that whole text, those first verses of chapter 9, those 10 verses, they're they're really a, a more detailed explanation of a reference that our writer made to the construction of the tent or tabernacle back in Hebrews 8, 5, where he said they serve a copy, shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. So what our writer was trying to establish there, he was, <laughs> excuse me, he was trying to show us that the tabernacle approach, the tabernacle approach to God was prescribed by God himself, all of the construction details. And so what God was trying to teach Moses, and our writer says, what God is trying to show us, is God has to be approached on his own terms. That's the lesson there. No one had access to God on his or her own terms. It wasn't an issue of sincerity. It was an issue of a prescribed way of approach. And our writer has a present-day reason for those old covenant tabernacle references. What he means for us to learn is in the very same way that God restricted access to his presence in the tabernacle, in the old covenant, in the same way he has restricted access to his presence through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he is now the prescribed new covenant approach to God. We hear it all the time, and I'm I'm simply submitting to you that that is an incredibly radical concept for our culture to get. There aren't many or even several ways for people to approach God. There aren't several New Covenant mediators. We looked at that last Sunday morning. Providing access or entrance into God's holy presence. And so, what our writer did in that verse, Hebrews 8, 5, he joins the unanimous testimony of every voice in the New Testament, along with the recorded words of our Lord himself, no one comes to the Father but by me. So so Father God has consistently revealed, how can I put it? Father God has consistently revealed a divine intolerance 
to anyone who would approach minimizing, denying, belittling the role of Jesus Christ, our high priest at the right hand of the Father. One of the best worship choruses we used to sing, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. Alone is the important word in that sentence. Not in Christ, alone is the important word. Now, today's text, chapter 9, it, it, it picks up the theme of 8.5. It picks up our writer's reference to the tabernacle where God gave Moses the very specific instructions on how it was to be made. And it moves beyond just the, the general shape and size of its structure to its, its furnishings and some of the details. But his interest, he makes quite clear, actually... It has nothing to do with mere sort of antiquarian history. The material he's going to describe and draw out in that portion of chapter 9, it's, it's to display the superiority of the new covenant ministry of Christ and the fading into oblivion of the legal worship structures of the old covenant. Now, we haven't talked about it for a while, but remember, way back in chapter 1, remember our writer's audience. So he's writing to Jewish believers. Jewish believers who have discovered Christ, but are now being coerced back under the old covenant. And he's, he's forcing a message into their ears that, that in, in spite of what the Judaizers are telling them, there is no effective old covenant to which they can return anymore. That is still true, by the way. There is nothing left in that covenant that will bring them to God. It is 8.13. Obsolete, 8.13. Fading away. So, our writer, he writes to these Jewish believers, and he's, and, he, and he's encouraging them not to be deceived, that, that this new and living way through Christ is the only approach available for those who want to find peace with God, confidence, hope, purity. All that sets up our text. Point number one. The main concern of our writer is limited to the two areas of the tabernacle where the priests ministered on behalf of the people. There's a, a, a specific and very important reason for the way our writer approaches his description of the two areas of the tabernacle. We'll focus on that in just a minute. But for just a second, because we don't think about this very often... Just pay attention to the description of these two areas as our writer describes them to New Testament Christians. In the first nine verses of Hebrews, first five verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. Now here, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence, and it's called the holy place. That's the first section. 
But there's a curtain. This is the one, by the way, when Jesus was crucified, this is the one that was torn from top to bottom. Be careful how you read that text. I've seen Easter dramas in church and heard songs that give you the impression that there was a massive earthquake and then the veil of the temple was torn in two. Read the account. Here's what happened. The earthquake came after. The veil was torn not by an earthquake but by the hand of God opening up this area that we're now going to be describing. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain... There's this second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, the tablets of the cut, the law, law of God. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Notice the way our writer closes these words by telling us he's not interested in pursuing all the various facets and furnishings of the tabernacle. Not going into that. He's not interested in all those details. What he wants to examine, and you'll see his very practical reason for it in just a second, what he wants to examine is this idea of these two separate areas. The holy place, that's in verse 2, the most holy place in verse 3. You may have noticed, just on the side, that our writer only describes the sacrificial arrangements of the tabernacle, the temporary tabernacle in the wilderness. He's not talking about the permanent structure of the temple that would come later in Jerusalem. And I think, I think, there's a, an important, though uh, not obvious, reason for that. Our writer restricts his discussion to the tabernacle because it was, it was the details of the construction of the tabernacle that Moses received on Mount Sinai. Remember, our writer is comparing two covenants. Old covenant, new covenant. And the best way to picture the old covenant is to talk about the tabernacle that Moses received on the mountain while he received the Old Covenant law of God. All of the passing limitations of the tabernacle also apply to the temple. But our writer isn't just comparing places of worship. He's contrasting two covenants. And the tabernacle fits better with that contrast. So, this description of tabernacle worship, it fits, it fits what our writer's purpose was back in 8.5. All these details about the tabernacle and these two rooms, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Like, we care about this. And, and our writer says, well, there's a picture here you need to get. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. Back to the two separate rooms. Here's what happened in them. First, the outer room. 
the holy place. In the holy place, many different priests would take, for lack of a better term, this probably isn't the best one, they would take shifts. They would take turns and present the blood of the sacrifices brought every day by the people. The people knew when they had sinned. And they knew God demanded that they deal with those sins immediately. This couldn't wait for the once a year ministry of the high priest. There's a lesson in that. Never think you're going to repent of sin sometime. You never will. So these daily visits to the priests with their offering reminded them that they couldn't just sit on their sin. It reminded them that their sin wasn't going to go away by itself just because they stopped thinking about it. And it reminded them that it wasn't enough for them just to feel bad about their sin. God was showing them they they couldn't just count on his love all by itself to just turn away and, and pretend their sin didn't happen. In other words, God couldn't just get used to their sin. So off to the holy place they would go. Into the tabernacle they would go, take their offering for the priest to kill, and prepare for presentation to the Lord. And our our writer kind of rushes over the other duties of those priests in that first section. He says in verse 6b, they were performing their ritual duties. We know some of those duties. Some of those duties over and above presenting the blood from the sacrifices... Uh, Included things like tending the lamps on the altar, which were never, ever to go out. Picturing a, a permanent presence. Tending the lamps, which were never to go out. And the burning of incense, which could only be burned with fire taken from the altar of the burnt offerings of the people. And there's another powerful picture there. Illustrating that anything, anything like the smoke of that burning incense, anything rising up to a holy God must first be symbolically purified. You couldn't just go in with a lighter and light these things. The fire off the altar where the sacrifice had been offered. That was used to light the incense because the smoke was going to rise to God and it had to be cleansed. By the way, Both of these tasks were repeated every day without exception, both morning and night. What you may not have thought all the way through is, this is where we get those words from a chorus we used to sing a lot. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the holy place. So so those words, we sing them in church, but they were written about a specific place. That place, the holy place, where those priests had to work and stay, keep the lamps lit, and, you know, 
Those words in Psalm 134, 1 and 2, they are describing this holy place, the first room that we're considering. It was a real place. And let me tell you, had to be tended 24-7, and around about 3 a.m., it would be a very dark, lonely place. And so you have these wonderful words of exhortation to these weary priests. And now we're, of course, all called priests and ministers of the Most High God. And these priests would stir up their own hearts when they felt the least inspired. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Now, there's nothing in the account that says priests had to raise their hand. They weren't charismatic. Nor was Solomon when he dedicates the temple. And nobody told Solomon. It's not instructed anywhere. And it just says he spread out his hands toward heaven. Nehemiah, when he prays, he lifts his hands toward heaven. All through the Psalms, you'll find David talking about raising his hands. We read it in our text this morning. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. There's just, there's something about, we, we know, depending where you are on earth, heaven isn't up. We, we, like, we've got that figured out. But we also know what it is to reach out. No one will ever convince me that my worship isn't aided and helped by simple reminders and gestures. Lifting hands to the Lord. Do you know what the people did while the priest entered the holy place to minister on their behalf day after day after day? Do you know what the people did? We're actually shown a picture of it that you might not notice if you weren't thinking about it. In, in Luke chapter 1, Verses 8 through 10. This is about Zechariah. While Zechariah was serving as priest before God, so he's in the holy place, this outer area. When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And, and here's the people. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Get this picture. Here I come to the priest. We all come. We come daily because we sin frequently. And we bring the offering to the priest and he goes into the holy place. And while the priest is in the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place, he's taking his turn, all the people who brought offerings, all those who knew that the priest was in there for their sins, they were all outside in the outer court of the people, and they're praying. Something about that I like. This was not a light moment for them. It wasn't something convenient. They, they had a sense of what was at stake. They didn't just drop off a lamb, get back in the car, and go home. They stayed, they waited, they gathered, sinner with sinner, they wept, they knelt, they prayed. Something huge was happening in there that affected them. Let's look at the other room just for a minute. The Holy of Holies. It's our, my, our writer's main concern, really. 
But into the second, that's the second area, first only the high priest. This is one person. And he goes once a year, and he doesn't dare go, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself. Look at this. And for the unintentional sins of the people. We'll get there and look at that. It's a one-verse summary of the high priest in the most holy place. It doesn't quite capture all the details. If you wanted to take the time, you could, don't do it now, you could look at Leviticus 16, and it makes it clear that what actually happened is the high priest would first take the blood of a bull, sprinkle it in front of the mercy seat. He would do that for himself and for his own family. Then he would go out of the most holy place and he would come back with the blood of a goat. He would re-enter the Holy of Holies a second time presenting the blood for the sins of the people. And here's something else. The, The solemnity being pictured here, it was emphasized by the fact that None of the other priests could be offering sacrifices in the outer room, in the holy place. That all had to stop when the high priest went into the holy of holies. Everything else shuts down. No people are in the outer court of the people. Everything shuts down. Everybody else is absent. There's, and, and the picture there is something is happening here so holy that it, it would be detrimental. Actually, read the text. We're not comfortable with this. It would mean death. For people who thought boldly enough to just kind of cozy up to God while the high priest was offering sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. There could be no other people in the tabernacle anywhere. There could be no other priests ministering anywhere. Such... Do you see what's being pictured here? We, we desperately need, even if we don't need all these details, we desperately need the reminder, the chasm that exists between people like us and a holy God is not a little chasm. It's, it's, it's massive. It's a massive chasm. That Jesus didn't come and just sort of patch up a little tiff that we had with God. Kind of say, there, there. Come on, you two. There are two important issues I want to, I say, start wrapping up. Okay, I'm not promising it's two minutes. Point number two. I think this is a question people have. It's a hard question. The high priest offers sacrifices for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay? Here's my question. Are those those the only forgivable sins? The hard words are really spelled out specifically in this ninth verse, aren't they? Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
where are we going to go with this? What, what do we do with these Holy Spirit-inspired words? Here's my problem. I don't know about you. Maybe you're, you're all just a lot more godly than I am. But simple honesty requires me to admit that at least some of the sins I've committed, I committed with a full knowledge that what I was doing wasn't pleasing the Lord. Here's my question, and I want you to be absolutely honest. Has anyone else ever done that in this room? I'm going to wait. Anybody else ever done that in this room? Okay. I mean, our conscience is certainly fallen and it's warped, I get it, but it's usually not completely silent, not all the time. So are, are, we, are we doomed here? Here's what I see happening in this text. And here's an important point. So if you haven't been listening up to this, just give me this much of your attention here. Here's, here's what I see happening in this text. And, and it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson for us on framing difficult verses in their context to see if additional light can be shed on a difficult verse. And, and I think that's exactly what happens in this case. What I'm saying is, I think there's a truth around the statement made in verse 7 that you won't see just looking at verse 7. So, so what we're learning to do now, all together this morning, we're learning how to study God's word. And that to me is exciting. The key is, remembering there's a reason our writer gives all this teaching on the two rooms in the tabernacle rather than just one. That's the key. He begins with the outer room. Remember? The holy place. All the priests would take turns, offering sacrifices every day for the sins of all the people. The people would bring these animals for sacrifice when they sinned, and they brought them because they knew they had sinned. Okay? We're going to look at unintentional sins in a minute. But here, the people brought the sacrifices because they knew they had sinned. Intentional sins. They were aware of their guilt. They kept those priests busy in the holy place every day because they knew they had to provide sacrifice right away before they forgot about their sin. And it just slipped into Never Never Land. But what about other sins? What about the sins they hadn't entered into knowingly? The outer room would cover those things. When they knew they had sinned, they brought a sacrifice for those sins. But what about sins they hadn't entered into knowingly? I mean, we're not always good, are we? We're not always good at seeing our own fallenness. 
Were, were some of the words we spoke last week tainted with pride? Do you think? Any of them? Did we have moments, even, even brief moments, where we delighted in circumstances that made us look good, delighted in our own glory, delighted in our own success? Did we miss an opportunity saying we were too busy to, to show compassion or kindness and we never got around to it and we never thought about it? God certainly feels the weight of all those sins even when I don't. And that's what that annual trip into the Holy of Holies by the high priest is all about. The high priest was offering something of a deeper level of sacrifice than could take place in the outer room on a daily basis. More sins were being covered in that once a year sin offering by the high priest alone. And here's what I think. I think here's the New Testament fulfillment. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What is this? What does that mean? I mean, I can, I can pretend, I can cover up, I can ignore. I can rationalize. I can, walking in the light has to do with just, I, I, I live in God's word, I live in his presence, and... And you know how it works where you think you think this little area in your basement is relatively clean and then you go and put a bright flashlight on and you shine it and, and you see it's not as clean as I thought. Light has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It, it shows things that walking in the light is is having my life constantly laid bare and open and dealing with my sin before the Lord. Not, not uh, pretending, not justifying, not covering up. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's what walking in the light is all about. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, are these sins I know about or don't know about? If I confess them. It's not a hard question. If I confess my sin, I'm aware of it, right? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is this and here? I mean, why couldn't that be a period? We confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That certainly is good news, is it not? He will, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think what's being pictured in those two rooms, it's really important. So people sin day by day by day. They're running out of livestock to cover all their sins. And forgiveness isn't cheap. That's what they're being taught. It's a costly thing. It's a costly thing. 
And they sin and they bring it and they bring it and they bring it. And then once a year, all those offerings stop. And there's something else happening. And the high priest goes in once a year. And there's a sin offered for the unintentional, 9-7. All the unintentional sins. All the things that just make our uncleanness what it is. All right, point number three. How does the new covenant cleanse the conscience? That's the first question. The second one is more important. And does that mean Christians don't feel as bad when they sin? Because I think that's what's happening. If I see something happening in in the church, it's people, people talk about the grace and the cleansing work of the cross in such a way that that it doesn't actually bother them, even if you can show them they're sinning, because, well, I'm forgiven. And I think there's something short-circuited there. There's something horribly wrong there. So these two questions. How does the new covenant cleanse the conscience? And does that mean Christians don't feel as bad when they sin? There's... There's one reference to the conscience in today's text, and there's one in the text we'll look at next week. What I'm doing is stringing them both together, okay? Sure, Pastor Don, go ahead. All right. Verse 9 and verse 14. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, here's the negative, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 14 says, how much more will the Will the blood of Christ. And then these strange words, they're only used here in the whole New Testament. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here's, here's one that cannot. That's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And here's one that can purify. Two things stand out when you compare these two covenants. First point, the old covenant cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, verse 9. He or she is reminded of personal guilt and the ineffectiveness of the sacrifice brought by the fact that they had to just keep coming. Day after day after day after day. And they weren't changed. This covenantal barrenness is contrasted with the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. You see it in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So so we know at least this much. We know the Holy Spirit is somehow involved in the divine end of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit provides something through the Lamb of God that never was provided under the old covenant. Okay, that much we know from the text. But there's more. The Apostle Paul he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is involved in both ends of the New Covenant. 
the sacrificial end, Christ offered by the Spirit, and on the reception end, my end of receiving the benefit of the new covenant. Paul talks about that. Are you still with me? He talks about that in Romans 8, 15, and 16. Look at this. Here's the new covenant. And he writes to people so they'll understand the difference in what God is doing in the new covenant. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Back into fear. But you have received, capital S, the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that, that we are children of God. Okay, but how, how does the spirit bear witness with my spirit? How does he do it? And what does that have to do with the power of the new covenant to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper? How does that happen? Because, like all those worshipers under the old covenant, I'm still not sinless. Not yet. I will be when Jesus comes. And we see him. We'll be just like him. Not yet. I'm, I'm, I'm not sinless yet. And they weren't sinless. But here's the difference. The Holy Spirit, according to Paul, does something in my heart. He does something in my heart that was never possible under that old covenant. Here's how the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit. Even when I sin... The Holy Spirit works in my mind. He works to awaken a fresh awareness. And especially when I sin. The Holy Spirit says to me, Dawn, look around. Pour over the scriptures. Do you see any demand anywhere for an additional sacrifice for your sins? And I say, no, Lord, I, I don't. Since God the Son died, rose, and ascended, is there something else that you see, Don, demanded as payment for your sins? And no. No, there isn't. And so my mind, my mind is made to stand on Christ alone repeatedly. Not just once. Not just when I got saved. My conscience, my conscience must be brought to heal. It's trained by the finished sacrificial work of Christ on the cross for my behalf. It is freshly cleansed by the ongoing priestly work at the throne of God. An eternal priesthood, it's called. And, and now that last question. And now I'm ready to say we're wrapping up. That last question. Well, if all that's true, the sacrificial death and ministry of Christ on my behalf, it really does cleanse the conscience. Does that make me feel better when I sin or worse? Does the new covenant make me feel less remorse or more when I sin? 
It's actually not a hard question. It's not a trick question. Do you feel more remorse when you fail a police officer or when you break the heart of a father or mother or husband or wife or family member? And the answer is obvious. Failing someone you love hurts the most. But it's a good pain. It's a good pain. Because we're not written off. It's the kind of pain that sows the seeds for genuine repentance. And repentance is what opens the door for spiritual refreshment by the Holy Spirit of adoption in our hearts. You can read about this. Paul talks about this very process in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 10, where he had to write them about some sexual immorality that that they were proud of because they were so tolerant and open-minded. And who are they to judge? You know, all the stuff that you hear. Paul wrote them. Now he writes them again and says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For for you felt a, see this? Godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. There are no more sacrifices. That is the proof of the ongoing power of the new covenant. And and the deeper new covenant pain of sin releases the renewing power of the Holy Spirit when I lean into his promptings and repent, that that becomes the operating system of the new covenant. His ongoing priestly ministry on my behalf, the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, bringing sons and daughters to a heavenly father, the work of the Holy Spirit when he reveals sin, And the way that grieves my heart in a way it never could before Jesus Christ became my Savior and Lord, which in turn leads to repentance, which in turn leads to a deeper claim and work of the Holy Spirit on my mind and heart, which leads to a deeper purifying of the conscience. All of this, aren't you glad John was able to say, here's what we call it, walking in the light. Walking in the light. Let's pray.